The following audio is from Central Christian Church, located in Portales, New Mexico. To connect with Central, go to centralwire.org.
church. So in the book of Ephesians chapter two, verse eight through 10, we read, God saved you by his grace when you believed and you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. So none of us can boast about it for we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he has planned for us and planned for us long ago. So in 2021, a young aspiring two-year-old colt racehorse finished very last in his very first race. The owner, very discouraged, said, I'm done with you. He entered that colt into a claiming race where basically that owner put that horse up for adoption. And for a small fee, that two-year-old colt had a new owner. So, new owner, new mission, In that claiming race, that horse won by 17 lengths, which in horse racing terms, that's a long ways. So the new owner was very, very encouraged, very ecstatic. He was so excited until the next year, that poor colt in his next races finished third twice, fourth once, and fifth once. So the, the owner was, was kind of discouraged. You know, 2022 was that horse's only chance for major thoroughbred races. At 1 p.m. on Saturday, May 7th, there was a late scratch from the Kentucky Derby. And this owner and this horse had a chance with mere seconds, with 30 seconds left to go before the books closed for the Kentucky Derby, this young colt was entered into the race, aching for a chance to just open, to just get to run. He opens his betting odds that day at 90 to 1. 90 to 1. And by the time the race starts and the books had closed, he closed at 88 to 1 odds. Now, I'm not a horse racing fanatic. I love to watch it, but I don't bet. So 88 to 1 seems like a long shot. So the owner and the jockey, having never, ever been associated with a Kentucky Derby caliber horse, They were newbies. They were outsiders. They 
were long shots. The jockey had never had a chance to ride a contender in a horse race. And at the opening bell of of the race, that horse dropped immediately to last. He was 16 lengths behind the leaders, so far behind the leaders that when the aerial drone flew over, couldn't even see him in the picture. He was that far behind. So by the world's standards, that poor horse was the throwaway racer of the day. Now, the throwaway racer, the horse in the field that nobody knew, as they rounded the last turn headed for the the finish line, that horse had worked his way up into fifth place. And as they charged towards the finish line, he had bobbed and he had weaved and he had bobbed and he had weaved. And with mere seconds left to go in the race, he took the lead. The throwaway racer, nobody knew who he was. The announcer struggled to find who he was. And by the time they had found his name, the race was over. Winning the race on that day, he became the longest odds winner to ever win the Kentucky Derby at 88 to 1, or 80 to 1. So I titled this, Who is Setting Your Odds? You know, if that owner who had claimed that horse had probably listened to his friends and listened to the world, he would have taken that two-year-old colt and he'd put him out to pasture and he'd let him live for a while there in the pasture and then sold him, but he didn't. You know, regardless of the results of the 2021 racing season, that owner had hope in his horse. He had hope, and he believed that his horse could be successful. His horse just needed an opportunity. So my question to you, who's setting your odds Who's setting your worth? Are you listening to what the world has to say on how valuable you are? This moment, when we take communion, when we celebrate communion, our Heavenly Father has determined our worth. He showed us that we are worthy. We are so valuable that he sent his one and only son to die on the cross for you and for me. As we celebrate today, remember, God is the only person that can set your value. God is the only one that sets your odds. If we continue to search for our value in the world, we will never measure up. But as we come this morning, remember, in the eyes of our Lord and Savior, we are valuable. We are worthy. We are winners. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for sending your Son to die the cruel death that he did on the cross for us, for our sins, to save us, to give us hope, to give us our value in you. Lord, as we take to this table this morning, let us remember your sacrifice, but let's celebrate your love. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.
I've heard for years people say, how many promises are there in the Bible? There's a Facebook meme that comes across every once in a while that says there are 30,000 promises in Scripture. But a quick Google search will tell you there are 31,102 verses in the whole Bible. So it might be hard to say, well, because that would say there's a a promise in every verse. And that may be true. But a guy named Dr. Everett Storms from Ontario, Canada, set out to find out how many promises are in the Bible. He spent two years researching it, and he discovered 8,810 promises in the Bible. 85% of them were from God to man. So it was, I mean, it was uh, based in heaven, 85% of them. Isaiah had the most, more than 1,000 promises in the book of Isaiah. He said he was most moved by the uh, 37th Psalm. We're not going to read it right now, but uh, he said that nearly every verse is a most wonderful promise. I thought that was really interesting. But what if there's more? What if there really is more promises than 8,000? Maybe there are some that it doesn't state it as a promise, but there are promises between the lines. Second uh, Corinthians 1.18, Paul is talking to the church at Corinth, and he says, As surely as God is faithful, our word to you does not waver. He's talking about the consistency of God and the faithfulness of God. And he says, as surely as God is faithful. He doesn't say it as a promise, more of a statement of fact that our God is faithful. So that's a promise to hang on to. In Matthew chapter 6, where Jesus is teaching them how to pray, one of the lines in there is, give us this day our daily bread. Where it doesn't list it as a promise, but there is an assumption that God hears our prayers There is an assumption that God responds to our prayers. Is that a fair statement? So maybe it's not stated as a promise. Maybe it's behind there. So can you count the promises in Scripture? I'm not sure if I really can, but I know I can feel them. We're in this story in uh, called Road Trip. We're going to be in Mark chapter 8 if you join us. If you have your Bible online, if you're listening on the radio, Mark chapter 8. We're glad you're joining us here at Central Christian Church. Our summer series called Road Trip, Taking God With You. I said all of that to tell you there are no promises in this story we're about to read. You're like, that's the dumbest intro you've ever had, Don. There, there might not be but his actions prove a promise. Now, just to set the scene a little bit, we're in Mark chapter 8 as you're going there. How many brought your Bibles? Lift them up, lift them up. Bible believing in a Bible using church. Mark chapter 8, you'll see, begins with the feeding of the 4,000, one of the miracles of Jesus, how he, he ministers to people. This story we're looking at is sandwiched in between that and their trip to a place called Caesarea Philippi. I've told you before, this is one of the most powerful trips in Scripture. When Jesus takes his apostles and they go to this town called Caesarea Philippi, it was the Vegas of that day. It was French Quarter, New Orleans of that day. It was Sin City. There were gods everywhere. And Jesus walks his apostles up to this town and says, In view of all these other gods, who do you think I am? Who do you say I am? And Peter says, You're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. Well, this miracle is, is sandwiched between those two things. And, I, and why that matters is Jesus is doing things, but I don't think that's all he's doing. I think he's trying to, and I want to submit to you that he is teaching us about his character and the promises are, that are within his, his heart. Mark chapter 8, starting verse 22. When they arrived at Bethsaida... Some people brought a blind man to Jesus, and they begged him to touch the man and heal him. Jesus took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. Then, spitting on the man's eyes, he laid his hands on him and asked, Can you see anything now? The man looked around. Yes, he said, I see people, but I can't see them very clearly. They look like trees walking around. And Jesus placed his hand on the man's eyes again, and his eyes were opened. His sight was completely restored, and he could see everything clearly. Jesus sent him away saying, don't go back into the village on your way home. Now let's unpack this for just a minute. We're, we're talking about a town called Bethsaida. How many, everybody say Bethsaida. Okay, that's typically how we say it. But according to the Hebrew, it's actually not Bethsaida. It's Bethsaida. Bet means 
house. Uh, Bethsaida, Chorazin, Capernaum, that's the north part of the Sea of Galilee. It's where Jesus did a lot of his teaching. He was there a lot. He was around those people. But that right side is going to be a place called the Decapolis, the Ten Towns. It's a very Greek place. It's a very humanistic place. It's a very worldly place where a lot of other teachings are going on, and they're going to be all around you. I said it's Bethsaida, house of. Uh, Anytime you see the word Beth in there, it really is pronounced Bet. House of hunting is what this is, Bethsaida is. There were hunters there. One of my favorites of that description is a place called Bethlehem. We pronounce it Bethlehem. Bethlehem means house of bread. They were famous for their bakeries. They were famous for the people that were baking their bread there. And Jesus came from, hello, and then later on Jesus says, hey, you remember that place I was born? You remember that, that, that house of bread? I'm the bread of life. Ah, that just, that just, that's huge to me. That's just monstrous. But Bethsaida is a place where Jesus is at a lot. We find out that uh, Peter and Andrew are from there. We find out that Philip is from there. And we're going to find out that people may be hearing Jesus, but they may, may not be listening. Now, some are listening. It says in uh, verse 22 that they brought a blind man to Jesus and begged Jesus to heal him. Obviously, Jesus' miracles had made the news. Fair? Uh, preacher heals people, news at 11. You know, I mean, they, they knew about his miracles. So they brought a friend with him. People brought with him. Listen to me right out of the gate. This is an important part. I mean, we're not even five minutes in, and I'm preaching. All right, you ready? All right. They brought their friend to Jesus. Never in Scripture will you find a place that says, build a building, throw the doors out, and open, and hope everybody comes in. You hearing me? It was always designed for us, the believers, to go and get, or go and take Hey, I want to take my friend to Jesus. I want you to see this Jesus. I want you to take him with you. When they went on road trips, they took Jesus with them. When they heard about him, their friends took him to Jesus. Question, how do you lead others to him? Okay, now, I don't want there to be guilt in that. That is not what this sermon is about. Yeah, 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 you better bring people to Jesus. I'm asking, how do you do it? How do you bring people to meet Jesus? Is the church the only place where people can meet Jesus? The word you're looking for is no. Okay. Can you meet Jesus in a coffee shop? Can you meet Jesus in a cubicle at work? Can you meet Jesus in a classroom or a school bus? Can you meet Jesus on the golf course? Absolutely. You can be with Jesus. You can meet Jesus. But you, the believer, have got to take Jesus with you. You hearing me? It's not a job for, well, I invited him to church one time and that was it. No. Friends, we have to do more than just be an example. You hearing me? I do think we need to be examples. And I do think we need to be nice. But somewhere in our Christian psyche, we've got this idea, well, if I'm just nice, that's my job. I just got to do that and they'll want to know. They might. But this gospel has always been verbal. It has always been tell. They didn't have an internet. They didn't have buildings. When they built the church, it wasn't a building. It was bodies telling people. You can't believe how great this Jesus is. you got to know him. Friends, you and I, that's our job. But it's not just our job or responsibility. It's our joy. If he's in us, we need to be talking about him. Go into all the world And be nice. It's not what it said. Go into all the world and make disciples. It didn't even say invite them to church. It says point them to Jesus. These people took their friend to the presence of Jesus. But often, like the blind man, we can find ourselves needing help. Our faith wavers. Circumstances knock us down. We get overwhelmed and we say, why... Why could God care about me? He's got planets to deal with. He's got people. He's got countries. He's got problems. I'm too messed up. Friends, sometimes we need the faith of others 
to carry us through. Now hear me. I'm not talking about faith of others to save me. You hear me? That's on you. You have to, you and Jesus, that's it, all right? Your faith cannot save your kids. You, you are not, you don't get into heaven because your grandpa brought you to church to VBS a long time ago. It is you and Jesus, all right? But sometimes our salvation, our, our hope, our faith can help somebody else. This was a subject we talked about at camp this week with our high schoolers. It was based in Hebrews 11, by faith, Abraham, by faith, Noah, by faith, all this stuff. Can you borrow from somebody else's faith? Can, can I give you some of my faith? Can, can I, I'm weak. Can I use some of your faith? It's an interesting concept. I've really been thinking a lot about it. Because we have been given the ministry of reconciliation. That verse that, that uh, uh, Carolyn read for us a few minutes ago. We have been given the job. A ministry, all of us, not just the preachers, all of us have been given the job to bring people to Jesus. Jesus is the one that reconciled us to God, but we got to bring him to Jesus. At camp this week, I got to spend some time with a friend of mine who's a youth minister over in Lubbock. His name's Dakota. He's one of the directors there. And we got to talking about challenging, and we were kind of discussing this, how do you, how do you borrow your faith? I mean, is that... Is that is that something we can even talk about? That sounds not biblically, theologically sound. And he said, well, Don, let me see if I can explain it this way. And he told me about his daughter, Harper, who ended up being there Friday night. I got to meet her and, and his wife, and it was really a neat little story. But they had a lot of t- trouble conceiving. It took them a long time, and, and when they they got pregnant, and she was pregnant, at eight months, they called him in and said, we got a problem. We, we're struggling here in a heartbeat. And we're looking at all the, and they run, and they do more tests, and they say, it doesn't look like her heart's fully developed. I'm, I'm afraid this is not going to work out good. They gave this baby less than 5% chance of even surviving the birth, and no way she would last more than a day or two, because she just does not have a fully developed heart. And Dakota sat there and told me this story, and then he said, Don, I'm going to be honest with you. For two weeks, I I couldn't even pray. I couldn't pray about her. We already had her name picked out. I couldn't pray for her. I I couldn't mention her name. I was so overwhelmed. The doctors had talked about, maybe you should think about aborting this. Maybe, you know, this is going to be a stillborn. This is going to be a bad deal. You don't, this is going to be bad. And they, they just, they were overwhelmed. He said, but... There were hundreds of people, and I mean this literally worldwide, praying for us. His parents are missionaries, so they sent out prayer. Hey, look, we got a situation. This girl's heart is not fully developed. This is going to be bad. We need all of the help. And he said, I, never, I couldn't even utter her name until we got into the delivery room. And what a coincidence she was born healthy. Hearing me? <laughs> Ain't that lucky. That somebody misread something. You hearing me? Do you hear the sarcasm? If you're listening on the radio, I hope you see it in my. You can't see it in my face, but I hope you hear it in my voice. He he couldn't have faith, so his other friends had faith for him. You hearing me? You remember in the Old Testament when Moses was going into, or he sent Joshua into battle, and he stood up and he said, and and when he raised his hands, they won. But when he got tired, they started losing. So. Aaron and her came along. You remember what they did? They literally, it says they, they sat next to him and held his arms up. They held him up so his faith could stay strong. Can, can we come alongside you and hold your arms up when your faith is lacking? Maybe that's you. Maybe you're in this room right now and you're like, I, I can't see, Don. I know that faith is there, but I can't see it. Can we help reconcile you to Jesus? Can we pull you back? Because that's our job as Christ followers. Pull people back to Jesus. These friends pulled a blind man to Jesus, and then Jesus did something really odd. He led him out of the town. says he led him out of the village. Why? My thoughts? I think he wanted some alone time with this guy. I think you wanted some just Jesus and me time with this guy. Friends, 
You need to understand this. Some of our greatest times of growth come in dry seasons. Some of our most powerful times of growth, of faith, of understanding come in being alone with God. Amen? But our culture doesn't really celebrate quiet, does it? Our, our culture doesn't encourage still. It, it encourages run in and run. Friends, listen to me and listen to me now. You need solitude with God like you need water. It is absolutely the breath of life. It is the bread of life. It is the water of life. Could Jesus heal him in front of the others? Of course he could. If he'd done it dozens of times, that was not the issue. Maybe Jesus wanted him alone so he could work in him. Then he could use him to work through others. You hearing me? Maybe he needs to work in you, but you're not getting alone with him. But then comes the big question. Why, Spit? It's unhygienic. It's unclean. In our COVID world, it's just flat terrifying, all right? I mean, we just we don't want any part of that. It's just nasty. And pretty much worldwide, spitting is not liked, true? I mean, in Singapore, I found this out this week, if you spit on the sidewalk in Singapore and a cop sees you, it's an immediate $1,000 fine or five days in jail. So if you're headed to Singapore this week, just might want to watch out, okay? Um... But some faiths, specifically Islam, spitting is encouraged. I read this this week, that if you spit to the left, and you're Islamic, you spit to the left, it helps to ward off bad dreams. What? Uh, does that sound, uh, you know, that, that sounds like baseball players being superstitious, right? Oh, well, last time I stepped in the batter's I went with this foot first. So, I, you know, it, that's what it sounds like. The, only to the left, my bad dreams will go away. It is told that Muhammad, when he would come into town to bless people, he would spit on them. And some early Christian sects, I have found this, took this verse a, a tad too literally. And they started healing people instead of laying hands on them they they spit on them which i would like to tell you that we're going to instill a new program here it's a it's going to be a station back no you can feel safe and secure that ain't happening all right we'll put up a plastic shield here in the front to get you out of the spit zone if that's what i need it, it wasn't that well then and why the spit so I started looking, and some scholars, now hear me out on this. I don't like it. I'm just saying this is what the culture was. Some scholars believed that, and, and some people believed that the warm saliva would be healing, uh, would, would be feeling of pain, would help to deal with pain. Now hear me out. I don't know if that's how it was. I'm not saying that's how it was. But could he, could Jesus be wanting to, Lower this guy's pain level before he healed him completely. Is that feasible? I mean, think about it. You go to the doctor, uh, you get antibiotics, you don't feel very good. Well, you take the antibiotics, does it immediately make you feel good? No. But maybe in a day or two, uh, you know, then it starts to eat at the problem. Maybe he wants to lower his pain before he comes in and heals him completely. I don't know. I'm just saying feasible. Is that, would that be feasible? But the biggest deal to this story is not that he spit on him, it's kind of gross, but that he did it twice. He didn't spit on him the second time, he just put his hands up. Why did, he, why did it take two times for Jesus to heal him? Did you notice that? That he spit on him, and, and then he could see a little bit, and then he laid his hands on him, and then he, he could see completely. Now, this is not the first time that Jesus has used a progressive healing uh, uh, multiple times. There was another time where a guy was filled with demons, and um, he said, what is your name? You know, he tried to cast them out. What's your name? And, and then he cast them all out. And the second time, and the apostles came to him, how come we couldn't get rid of this? He said, because this kind only comes out by prayer. Okay, So this is a precedent. Jesus has done this. But why? Was he not strong enough to do it the first time? Did he mess up the first time? Can I throw a phrase at you? Progressive healing. What would be the point of that? Again, I'm just postulating. What if the point of that is to grow the faith of that 
guy? What if it is to grow what he, he understands, that he could really completely surrender to Jesus, that knowing that God is at work, he can't see everything? I mean, let's be realistic. We don't even have a name on this guy. We don't know his name. We do know a little bit about his circumstances. We can read between the lines. He depends on his friends. Is that fair? He, um, he has flaws. A physical flaw would make him an outcast. A lot of that culture would look at you and say, oh, you have a physical flaw. You're blind. You're, you're lame. Oh, you've done something. You've got sin in your heart. Which means he couldn't go to the temple or the synagogue. He would be an outcast. He would have to sit outside. He would have to depend on others' money. Now, here's one I've been thinking about. I don't know if it's true, but it, I think it's feasible to understand that this guy was not born blind. It just said it was a man that was blind. And I say that because when you read it, he says, I see people, but they look like trees. If he's been born blind, he wouldn't know what a people looks like or a tree looks like. But so, so again, I'm just I'm reading between the lines, but maybe we can see that his circumstances weren't fantastic. Is that a fair is that a fair assessment? What if what if Jesus is trying to grow his faith and and trying to get him to trust? You remember in the Old Testament when Gideon was about to go into battle against three hundred thousand men, so he gathered up people. He gathers gathers up thirty thousand warriors, and God says, "Oh, that's too many." Wait, you're still already outnumbered 10 to 1. Why, do, why is that too many? Well, because you're going to win. I'm on your team. I don't want you to think you won. I want you to go with less so you know it was just me. So he whittles and gets rid of 29,700 of them. You know? It goes in with 300 against 300,000, and he wins. But God is with him. Maybe God is trying to grow this guy, and maybe he's trying to grow his faith. Friends, I believe faith is the gap between logic and answers. Too many times when things go wrong in our life, we want a logical reason why, and then we want an answer with what to do to keep it from happening again. True? Case in point, school shootings. Tragic. Why is this happening logically? We want to find a logical way, and then we want to find an answer to why it happens, what are we going to do about it, but that space in between, that's where faith comes into being. Jesus is asking this man to trust him. What if he just stopped at the first one? Hey, I can see trees. All right, cool. Have a good day. See ya. What, what if he walked away right then? You see what I'm saying? What if, what if he left him? He wasn't seeing clearly. What if God has partially healed you so that you will laser focus in on him hearing me what if your healing is not complete because he's not done with you he wants you to lean into him because he's not through with you yet you see when we encounter jesus we really and we continually encounter him we're going to start to see people clearly we're not going to see them as trees we're not going to see them as projects we're going to see them as he sees them, valuable, broken, needing him. Maybe your healing in your eyes has only been partial because he's trying to get you prepared for something big. Listen to me now. To see racial differences and realize it has to change with us. You say, but Don, I'm not racist. I don't care. Are we going to stop the racial division? And it's got to stop by us intentionally doing that. Is that a fair statement? And it needs to stop with our generation. What if God is partially healing us to see alternative lifestyles, we don't like that phrase, and realize that God loves all people? He may not approve of every behavior, but He loves all people. People, you hearing me? And maybe he's trying to grow us to see people as valuable, to see addicts or homeless people and not judge them. Well, if they just made so many stupid choices. <laughs> yes, done, given. Can we move on and just love people where they are? You hearing me? 
Or what about the division we have seen in our country in the last 72 hours? In a day that we thought would be the greatest thing, we have seen nothing but hate and screaming and burning and attacking and rioting. People are on both sides of this issue. And all the people that are red or blue, all the Republicans or the Democrats, all the pro or anti, God loves. We need to love them. However you stand on that issue, we have got to love people. Is it possible we haven't been seeing people clearly? Uh, You've heard of William Randolph Hearst. He's a 20th century publisher, owned all the newspapers. He's a billionaire before it was cool to be a billionaire. He was an art collector, an avid art collector. He started reading, um, he was reading one of his own papers, and he read an article about a collection of art that just was spectacular. It was one particular set of canvases that told a story, and it was just such a fantastic article. He said, I have to have that set. He immediately went and sent a telegram to his art dealer and said, I want you to get this set of paintings at any cost. And he wired him a million dollars in his account. You said, start with that. If you need more, you let me know. I want it. I want it. I don't care what the cost is. Imagine his shock the next day when he gets a a, a telegram back from his art dealer who has found said collection of art. And it is in the warehouse of William Randolph Hearst. He already owned it. (laughs) He already had it. I wonder if we are missing the precious things we already have nearby. Hear me good. I believe we need to be ministering around the world. I I believe we need to partner with Pastor Andre and the Dominican. But do you realize how many houses are right around this building? How many, how many of your neighbors have you talked to and brought them to Jesus? That's our calling, to see people right where they are. Then Jesus does another thing. He, uh, he sends him home. Don't go to the village. Just, just go home. He didn't tell him, don't tell anybody. He'd done that before. But why did he not send him straight? Why did he tell him not to go back in the village? Now, there's a couple of ideas. Maybe it was because he didn't want a bunch of the crowds wanting more of the tricks. You know, we see that. Hey, show us some more of your signs, Jesus. Do some of those cool, you know, the healing people and that water to wine thing. I like that one. Do that one again, all right? And he said, you're not going to get another sign except for the sign of Jonah. So maybe he didn't do that because he was trying to keep from getting the crowds focused on that. Maybe he did it to protect him. Hear me. Matthew 11, verse 24, will tell us that Bethsaida was a horrible town. Write this down. We're not going to it. Matthew 11:24 says, Woe to Chorazin and Bethsaida. You would be better off than Sodom. Wait, what? What? Nothing's worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. Apparently, Bethsaida and Chorazin were. It is a horrible town. There's judgment. There's hate. Maybe, maybe Jesus was protecting him. What if God hasn't fully healed you to protect you? Hear me and see if I can make some sense of this. Maybe you've dealt with a broken heart. Divorce, broken, dumped, whatever... And you can't understand why God hasn't put another person in your life. Why, why can't I find that right person? Maybe, maybe he hasn't fully healed that heart. Maybe he's protecting you because you're not ready to rush into a relationship. You hear me? Maybe you've dealt with feeling abandoned. Maybe that broken heart or somebody left you or somebody left your family and somebody uh, hurt you a long time ago and stabbed you in the back and you just, and it just won't go away. Why can't I get rid of this? Maybe God is allowing that to stay there so you will remember that and not let people go casually. Hearing me? Could God's deliverance be protecting you? I wonder what this guy's story will be. This is my testimony from death to life. You rewrote my story. I wonder what his story is going to be. Did this guy deserve the healing? Did he earn the healing? 
Shoot, we don't even know his name, much less his circumstances. We don't know if he deserved it, if everybody loved him, if he was the town clown. We don't know anything about it. Jesus saw his chains, and he set him free. Period. That's what grace is. That's why it's so amazing. It is not what you've done. It's not how good you are. It's how great he is. He restored his sight. In this version it said, his sight was completely restored. Friends, what do you need to see? Where is your sight lacking? Because when we see Him, really focus on Him, it's going to give us power to make a difference. It's going to be, give us power to take people to Him. Friends, take God with you on your summer journeys, but take us with you too. Can, let me ask you this, can we stand with you and hold up your arms? Can do you need to borrow some of my faith or some of the other people's faith because yours is so beat up right now? Then let us pray with you. Let us hold your arms up. Are you bringing people to Jesus? As friends, that is not even an option in Scripture. It is an absolute command. It is, there is not a loophole in that one anywhere. It is not for a certain group of people. It is for all believers to bring people to the presence of Jesus. Maybe that's church. Maybe that's youth group. Maybe it's college group. Maybe it's going and having coffee and pouring into people. Like I said, there's not a lot of promises in this passage. But you know what there is? There is the character of Jesus. And he tells me, the promise that I see is there, and this is that you're not alone. No matter what your situation is. No matter how broken you are, no matter how many chains you've been under, He wants to set you free. But your testimony is what will change lives. We will overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our, our story, our testimony. My testimony is that we were dead. Not mostly dead, you hearing me? We were dead dead. <laughs> and He brought us to life. Doesn't mean you're perfect he's perfecting you but you can bring people to jesus doing that saying hey look if he could save a wreck like me he can save you let him rewrite your story let's pray together god be my everything be my delight father may our testimony declare you from death to life from broken to healed from divorced from addicted from struggling from fear to trust you rewrote my story your grace rewrites everything may we speak of your grace through Jesus we pray Amen thank you for listening to audio from Central Christian Church in Portales, New Mexico Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To connect with us, visit our website at centralwired.org.